Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Wow. I love entering into these moments, and I'm so grateful to be here. And uh, just so you know, like, I automatically, from the, from the gun, just want to let you know that I don't believe that my words or anytime we're on stage here, like, we think our words have any value. We really believe that when God speaks through his word and then breathes on it with the Holy Spirit, that's where lives are changed. So I'm just challenging you to start as we are watching this or wherever we're at, like, lean in to what God wants to say to you through his word. And I got to be honest, I'm super excited uh, to preach to you today. I mean... Uh, the Olympics started, so I'm real excited about that. And I just know, want you to know, like, I love the Olympics. Anybody love the Olympics with me? We got some uh, USA fans. Anybody really love the Olympics? Like, you're like, America! Yeah, yeah, there's, sorry, that was a lot. But I feel like me, I love the Olympics because I love sports, one, but I love, like, rooting for sports I don't even know the rules to. You know what I'm talking about? This year, believe it or not, there's a sport called dressage. It's how well you dress. People are getting medals for this. So y'all been living this out for a while, by the way. But I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I'm rooting for America in these sports, like synchronized swimming. I don't know how to do that. Like, and I'm so for it because guess what? America's awesome, right? Like, that's, that's how I feel when I'm watching the Olympics. And there's this part of me, though, that loves the Olympics because it's like their moment, the moment of their life. And I'm watching this play out in real time. Like, they have spent their entire lives leading up to this very moment to get a gold medal or a silver medal, and, and I'm watching the emotion collide with, like, purpose, and it's unbelievable to me because I feel like I can tell immediately, like, who's there by obligation and who's there because they're actually, like, passionate about what they're doing. Like, this morning, I don't know if you heard the news I heard after the 8.30 service that USA basketball team lost to France, which is just un-American <laughs> to start, but they lost to France. And I'm like, these guys are the most talented guys in the world at what they do, yet they can't be friends. And I'm thinking, it's probably because they're not really passionately involved in what's happening. And, and I've noticed this tendency in me, and maybe you have this tendency as well, that when it comes to following Jesus, I honestly have never really lost my belief system. I've never lost that, but I've lost my heart. And I think that a lot of us in this room, if you were honest with me, like if I went around to each one of you and asked, like, okay, how's Jesus to you? When I say the name Jesus, does that elicit any emotion in you? Is there any emotion connected to your devotion or your belief system that you believe? And I feel like there's a vast majority of us in this room that you're walking around and you're acting like yourself, but really you're a shell of who you are. You're kind of numb to the emotions that you're feeling. You're kind of maybe beaten down by some of the circumstances. You know, when I've walked away from Jesus, it's probably a circumstance or sin. Like my mom had cancer and I was like, literally did not talk to God for like three months when I found out. But at the same time, like when I've sinned against somebody or I'm in a uh, state of sin, that causes me to not want to come to God because I just feel guilty. So maybe you're in a season right now where it's not that you lost your belief system. It's that you lost your heart. And I believe that a lot of us in this room are in that place. So the title for my sermon today is Reclaim Your Passion. Reclaim Your Passion. Go ahead and tell your neighbor, get excited. I mean, wake up. Get excited. This message is meant for somebody who feels like passion is the farthest thing away from your relationship with Jesus. It's for the burned out person. It's for the person who's been serving but has no source or no sustenance we got to reclaim our passion because our passion for Jesus is directly connected 
to how we are to live for Jesus. And so I don't know about you, but like I need a pep talk every now and then. You guys need a pep talk. Like you have your best friend. Maybe you're sitting next to them right now like, that gives you those pep talk. You know, like before a date. You know what I'm talking about? Like that friend who kind of lies to you that you look amazing before you go out. Just so you need the little extra energy as you get going. You know, and afterwards you're like, you need to start dating Jesus. He doesn't deserve you. You know, like you got that friend that you, everyone has him, right? Or a coach. Any of y'all play sports and you had that coach who gave you the pep talk. And man, I just, God bless my JV track coach. Like that man, Coach Prince, like he was working so hard to earn his $500 stipend for that season. Like he legitimately, I remember like before a race, he calls us in. He's like, boys. Men, like this is your moment. Like you have been waiting for this chance. I'm like, coach, I'm about to get fifth in this JV track race. I really hope this ain't it. Like I got more to life than this. Like we weren't big, but we were slow. Okay, like please, coach, no. But that pep talk gets you going, right? Why? Because it connects this like attitude of the game to the actions of the game. And so we've been in this series, First Peter where Peter has been like literally downloading unbelievable truths about the church that he's building, that it's built inside of you. It's built inside of you, and guess what? You're a living stone. You're called what? Chosen exiles, chosen people, holy nation, royal priesthood. This is true about us. And so if you haven't been with us, we've been talking about this idea that we got to prepare to be in the world, but not of the world. And we got to prepare for even when we've been projecting the suffering that we've been feeling or projecting negativity into our future, that God might show up. He might show up and be faithful. And so there's this part of you that needs to know you're burned out feeling the fact that you've lost heart. God is here today, I believe. And what he showed me this week, he wants to awaken your relationship with him. Revive it. Bring it back to life. You don't need to live in the high school experience that you had or the past experience of your life. He wants to reclaim your passion. So I'm so excited, but I feel like we got to start off, you know, with the Bible drill, as always. So if you have your Bible, hold it up, hold it up. And uh, I know Birmingham, you guys weren't here, but I just want to honor the, the parents in the room. So if you have a kid that was at VBS, keep your Bible up. Everybody else turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. Keep your Bible up. Everyone's like, no, I didn't have a kid there. <laughs> like, the whole place got, hey, you guys, okay, cool. All right, I see you, all right. Uh, Bless your soul. Let's just say that. It was nuts in here. Everybody turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. So as we read this, I just want you to think about the best definition I heard about passion was the intellect of the heart. It means your heart is smart enough to know what emotions to add to what you believe. So as we read this, there's literally Peter's going to lay it out. He's going to lay out three attitudes, and he's going to lay out the three actions that follow from that. You always start with identity, then move into activity. So let's read this together. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. If you're there, say, I'm there. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. 
The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Don't you love reading the Bible? When it's that clear, like do this, don't do that. So I want you to see, like we're going to go through this. There's three attitudes that he wants us to take on in the verses from chapter 1 through, or verse 1 through 7, and the actions that follow. So what does he start with? Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. All right, so what's the first shift in our attitude? We have to take this on. The mindset shift, number one, is suffering beats sinning. Suffering beats sinning. That's a lot easier one to read, but we have to take, as believers, this is what Peter's saying, we have to take a militant attitude towards the sin in our lives. We have to kill it. And because if we don't, sin will continue to be the driving force of your life. It will continue to be the thing that you make decisions by. What he's saying here is, no, 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 no. Put on the mind of Christ. Suffering does something for you. Just for me personally, suffering uh, gets my heart's affection. It's like this like, wake-up call. That's why James talks about it this way. Like, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because it develops a new perseverance and a faith lacking in nothing. It's because there's something about you that you're like, when you're going through the hardest time of your life, you're like, God, I got nowhere else to go. Like, if desperation is the goal of our Christian faith, then weakness is our strength. It's an opportunity for us. It gets our attention, and also it gets the world's attention, right? Like when you are suffering in this world, and you're like, you know what? Even if I die, even if my mom dies, even if whatever happens here, go on out, like whatever happens, I'm good with. Because I know, no matter what, I have a hope that lasts beyond this world. His name is Jesus. So suffering beats sinning. That's attitude shift number one. We got to put on the mind of Christ. We got to take on his mind. Verse three, where you have spent enough time in the past, doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. I mean, what a, what a list right there. We just had to read. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So this is what's so confusing. But This is our mindset, mindset shift that we have to take number two. This is enough is enough. Some of you have been telling yourself that about sin, haven't you? Like, enough is enough. That's the last time I'm going to look at that. That's the last time I'm going to drink that. That's the last time I'm going to say that. That's the last time I'm going to talk about her behind her back. Enough is enough. So the phrase that he talks about here, just so you know, like the way you worshipped idols in their culture was through immorality. So picture this. As Peter's writing this, he's picturing like a band of friends leaving the athletic uh, competition. And as they're leaving, they're like carousing, having a good time. And they're on their way to the temple of Jupiter or whatever god that they are worshiping and going to worship him through sexuality and getting drunk. That's literally what he is talking about. 
It's crazy how things have not really changed in 2,000 years. If you didn't know, this is my illusion was, I'm just going to say it bluntly. This is game day in Auburn, all right? Literally, game day in Auburn. I mean, come on. Peter's saying, no, 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 no. Enough is enough. You spend enough time. If you spend one more second in sin, it's too much time. Enough is enough. And I think it's also kind of crazy, and we talked about this last week, how you prepared for the wrong thing sometimes. Like, it's weird to me that, like, in our world, like, the world will literally speak evil of people who choose to do no evil. Like, the world does not think it's strange when you go out and you drink and you destroy your body through pills or you destroy your body through other means and you look at pornography and you're always with your buddies, you're never with your family. The world's like, yeah, that's normal. But then, whoa, you come into faith with Jesus and you start a relationship with him and all of a sudden you're at home on time spending time with your family and you've actually stopped drinking and guess what? You're not looking at porn anymore and you're actually just spending time with your family. The world's like, whoa, 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 you've lost your mind. What are you doing? That's because literally evil is maintained through peer pressure. Some of the college students, you guys need to know that. Like there's a reason why that we have hope that's supposed to look different. Some of us in this room, I just want to tell you like enough is enough. It's time. How does he finish this? But they will have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. He's talking to believers who've lost somebody in the name of Jesus. And he's saying they were blessed with the opportunity to physically die because now they're alive in Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I count it nothing. Everything else is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. That's what he's saying right here. So our shift number three, the end is near. The end is near. You know, every great theologian has actually predicted that the end of time would happen in their lifetime. Isn't that funny? It's because all the great theologians that we read and that like, we love to read, they had this like, anticipation, this expectation, like, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Are you ready? Like, are you actually going to respond and be like good with Jesus coming back tomorrow? Because you've got to have an answer. The end is near. And this is what Peter's saying. He's like, the end is near. What is your mind going to be like? Do you have a mind that's armed, ready for the worst to come or the best, depending on how you answer that? And what's amazing is that people for generations have been given their lives in the name of Jesus. In the 1500s, there's this guy named Thomas Hawker. You might have heard this story. It's famous. But when the religion shifted, they told him he had to denounce Jesus or else he would be burned at the stake. He said, no, I'm not denouncing my faith in Jesus. Night before, He's with a friend who's not a believer. And he's like, how are you so peaceful right now? He says that Thomas looks at him and says, I have the mind of Christ. So whatever pain is tolerable. He's like, I don't believe you. Like all of us would, right? You're about to be burned at the stake. I don't believe you. You're good right now. And what happens? He says, hey, if that's true, tomorrow, before you die, when you're on fire, I want you to lift up both hands. Now prove it to me that you really did have the mind of Christ. So the next day, the whole village circles around where he's going to be burned alive. And it says that the flame was lit, began to creep up his body as people watched on. He began to melt away and crisp. And as his face was melting away, onlookers said, he lifted up both hands to the sky towards heaven. And then he clapped three times. And witnesses say, that a worship service started and people started praising Jesus until the last ember of the flame had died out. 
That's the mind of Christ. That's what it means to suffer. It means that no matter what circumstance you came into today, there is a worship service on the other side of it. And, and guess what? Maybe there's a worship service in the middle of it. Maybe there's an opportunity right now that you think the suffering's too much. You think that you're about to face something you can't face. And God's saying, hey, give me control back. I'm the one who owns it all. I'm sovereign over your entire story. I know every intricate detail of your life. And guess what? I am here for you. So what does it mean to have a mind of Christ like that and then move into action? Peter's going to continue. So if you need a recap of the mindset, suffering beats sinning, enough is enough, and the end is near. Verse 7, therefore, in light of all that, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. That's like the last thing I thought he would say, right? Like be alert and go fight. No, be alert so that you may pray. So what's the first action we have to take? We have to pray actively. Pray actively. You know what's funny is that psychologically, um, you guys probably hated that's the first point. See, the recent COVID has caused people to like watch a lot of sermons online. You know the least watched sermons online have the word pray in them? It's because we do them the least. We do prayer. Like prayers literally just a part of it. Like, yeah, everyone prays except for me. The average engaged Christian, according to a study by Barna, prays about 45 seconds a day. That's engaged Christian. 30 seconds is projected and predicted to be over a meal. That means the people who are most connected to Jesus, according to the study, Pray 15 seconds a day personally to Jesus. And he's saying, no, no, no. First thing, pray actively. I don't want you, but literally, like, I think back to the times where I've walked away from Jesus or lost some passion, and there were times where I literally didn't talk to him. But when I think back to, like, the moments in my life, and maybe you had a moment like this where you really came to love Jesus, and you came to know, like, oh, my goodness, like, God is real. God hears my prayers. Like, I remember, like, jumping off the walls, like, oh, my goodness. Like, God, give me a wife and give me a Lamborghini. Like, I don't know how this all works, right? Like, I'm freaking out knowing that God of heaven hears my prayers. Like, let's go storm the gates of hell with a water pistol, right? Like, I'm, like, ready to go. And some of you in this room are, like, there. That's why I love college students. That's why I do a college ministry, because I love it. I love seeing how your passion gets aligned to what God wants to do in your life through his purposes. And then, guess what, though? can't do that apart from actually talking to him. Pray actively. That's number one. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality, what a word, to one another without grumbling. So the action number two we have to take, according to Peter, is to love deeply. To love deeply. I know this isn't like, whoa, this is a crazy revelation, but like, that's like the number one thing we're supposed to do as believers. And he talks about two kind of loves here. And so by the way, the kind of love that we're supposed to like fervently, earnestly love is actually the kind that's known as protective love and proactive love. He talks about protective love here. Did you know that somebody who's sinning against you, you can love them to actually cover their sin? This isn't like, hey, I sinned, so now I'm going to love you enough to make up for it. This is, no, no, no. You don't deserve my forgiveness, you don't deserve my love. I'm going to give it anyways. And guess what? It's going to cover your sin. That's a protective love. It doesn't expose. So my question to go with that one is, when's the last time your affections were stirred by loving someone in your life who didn't deserve it? It's really easy to love people that are easy to love. But I bet right now in this room, I could, you could probably name by name somebody in your life that's your most difficult person to love. 
And Jesus is like, hey, that's the, or Peter is like, that's the actual test to see how much you believe in this. How willing you are to love that person. And he continues and talks about the proactive love. See, hospitality. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. See, the phrase hospitality comes from the word hospital. So I want you to think about it. He's talking about like, think about a hospital. I have a guy in my small group who works in the ER. Has some crazy stories, but works in the ER. I want you to picture that. That's what it means to love and offer hospitality. Somebody who comes in off the street who has nothing to offer you, but you're going to love them anyways. I love William Barclay, who's like a famous theologian in England. He says, Christianity is the religion of the open hand, the open heart, and the open door. And typically, people in our culture in Auburn, Alabama, love to be like Southern hospitality, which is like, hey, I put like you coming to here, and there's like some like stuff kind of like attached to it. Like I have a reason for you being here, and I'm going to love you so then you leave saying some stuff, but I'm going to talk about you behind your back. He says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The final action is this one. Serve strongly. Serve strongly. Serve with the strength that God provides. How do we start this whole entire letter from Peter? That you are a chosen people, a holy nation, and a royal priesthood. What do priests do? Priests are the intercessors between God and man. And now all of a sudden, Jesus, the high priest, has given us access to the Father. So now we're called to go preach the gospel to people. And we love that point. We don't love the other thing that priests do. Priests offer sacrifices. In our world right now, what he's saying is the new church is being built, how to live for God, is to offer your sacrifice, a.k.a the gift of grace that God has given you. The gift of grace here is charis, or it's the word for charisma. It means that the very gifting you have, this is how gifts work. Everyone likes to ask me about gifting. Gifts work. God gives you a gift so you can use it on everyone else. The gift is actually the property of the Christian community. That's how they described it here. It's the open property of everyone else but you. It means our entire gifting. What we love to do is we love to use our gift to make ourselves look good. The enemy likes to use our gifts to like destroy God's kingdom. And God wants to use his gifts to, guess what? Bring glory. Reclaim glory from your life. So I got two things on gifting really quick. Number one, don't despise your gifting. I think a lot of us despise our gifting in the name of humility. And we're kind of afraid to admit that like God has gifted you in a very specific way. Like God has given you a specific way that he's designed you. And some of us cower a little bit by the gifting instead of walking around confidently knowing the one who gave us that gift and being like, you know what? It's not about me. When Miles gets up here and speaks, it's not about Miles. It's about the words he's speaking, God speaking through him. You have a gift to give. You have a sacrifice that is called. You're literally called to give it up for the Christian community. So don't despise it. Don't discredit it. And number two, don't envy the gifting of someone else. It's scary when I talk to college students how often they wish they were someone else. Kind of breaks my heart a little bit to think that God has gifted you with passions, burdens, beliefs, and you're more worried about what someone else is doing than what he's birthing in you. 
If you don't access the gifting that God has given you, you miss out on the glory to give it back to him. This is something that's so hard to understand. But God has given you abilities, talents, burdens that break your heart, and confirmations from people around you to say, this is what you were made for. I see you doing this. You can do it. Serve strongly. So to recap really quickly, pray actively, love deeply, and serve strongly. You know, it's funny, there's a, a famous story in World War II that happened where an entire French village was absolutely decimated and bombed. And afterwards, you know, you're re- rebuilding the city. All these French like, leaders got together and they went and tried to find the statue of Jesus that they had in the center of their town. It was like their most proud thing. We are a Christian town. This is who we are. And they went and found every single part of the statue except for his hands. And the local sculptor's like, hey, I can remake some hands and we can like attach them. And all the leaders got together and they were like, no, this, this might be for a reason. Like, we found everything else but the hands. So now, if you go to this French town, which, sorry they beat us in America, but if you go to this French town, sorry, that was a terrible joke. I, I don't know why it hit me in the wrong moment, but if you go to this, ah, <laughs> oh, dad jokes. Gosh, I'm a dad now. It's tough. <laughs> if you go to this French town, underneath that statue of no hands, you know what it says? I have no hands but yours. I think I got a picture of it. Yep. I have no hands but yours. Jesus saying, you are the hands and feet. And so there are so many ways that I feel like, honestly, I'm saying up here a little trembling at the idea of the people in this room who are so gifted in so many ways, yet not sacrificing those gifts here at this church. I think about how many opportunities there are to serve, and I kind of get a little overwhelmed. Because my job and our job as a staff is to get you equipped to do what God has called you to do but your job is to bring your sacrifice to the table and say, here I am. What would it look like for you to sacrifice, to be the hands and feet of Jesus? So here's the thing. is I just did my three points, and I did my second three points, and the keys guy is supposed to be coming out here, right? And this is the moment, right, where it's like we move into worship. But God did something to me this week and wrecked, wrecked my world a little bit about this because I thought this whole thing was just tied to living for God. But what's so unbelievably scary that I discovered, is this is Peter. Like, why Peter? The guy who built the church, why is this what he wrote for how we are to live for God? And I believe that 1 Peter 4 is not just a list prescribing what the church is supposed to do or our expectations for how to live. I think that this is Peter reliving his experiences that he had with Jesus the final night before he died. See, what you're about to see, and this is so crazy, is that this is Peter's defining moment. This is the moment of the Olympics where it's like, you were made for this moment. I mean, he's been walking with Jesus, right? He goes to the garden, right? This is the moment where Jesus is going to do the very thing that he came to do. And Peter, this is his defining moment. And I believe that 1 Peter 4, as we're going to see in just a second, is actually a reclaiming of the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. So we're going to read it together. Check this out. Jesus saying to his disciples, stay here and keep watch. Sound familiar? Be alert and of sober mind. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing and the flesh is weak, 
Y'all, look at 1 Peter 4. I mean, literally, if you look down at your own Bible, what are the attitudes of Jesus? He says, Peter says this, well, whoever suffers is done with sin. Live for the will of God, not for the will of man. Live according to God in regard to the spirit, because you'll be lifted up. The end is near. The time has come. The hour is here. But what's so amazing is these aren't just the attitudes that we're supposed to take on. They're actually the actions that follow. And in Peter's final defining moment, the very things that he just prescribed to us are the very things that he fails at in the garden. And the very ways that Jesus loves Peter in the garden. Check this out. It's crazy. Think about it. Pray actively. What happens? Peter falls asleep. He comes back and they're all sleeping. He does this three times. Only time in the scriptures where Jesus repeats his prayer. He comes back each time. They're asleep. What is Jesus doing? Praying. What is he praying? Not my will, but your will be done. Did you know that it says that he was praying so fervently and earnestly that he was sweating droplets of blood? And did you know that the way that 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 fervency and earnest, that word is only used in one other place, and it's used to describe how we are to love the multitudes and cover them with our sins? What am I saying? Think about this. Jesus was sweating more love than you and I could ever imagine. And then the next day, the very blood, what does it do? It covers all of our sins. Only time in scripture where those two phrases are used. It's meant to describe him laying it all out on the cross. What is the second one? Love deeply. What does Peter do that night? It says this about Judas. Of course, Judas. Gosh, Judas. Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords. Notice how it says that. With one of the twelve. With a great multitude. With swords and clubs. Came from the chief priests and elders of the people. What does Peter do this night? We've talked about this before. Peter's like, the revolution is here. It's time to go. Pulls out his sword. Runs up and cuts off this guy's ear named Malchus. It's like Jesus is like, these idiots. Like, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Like, literally, it's in front of Jesus, his future savior, Peter fails to love. Most underrated miracle in the Bible, in my opinion. Jesus walks over to the man named Malchus and heals his ear. Why? He wants to show it. Love covers a multitude of sins. Loved in that moment. And finally, what is the argument the disciples are having on their way to the garden? Hey, which one of us is going to be the greatest? And Jesus looks at him and says, the one that will serve. And then Jesus proceeds that night to do what? To go and lay down his life in service of man. What does Peter do? Definitely didn't serve Jesus. He denies him three times. And then cowers, cusses out a little girl by a charcoal fire. These are all, this is the defining moment of Peter's life. This is the moment where he should be like, Jesus, I've been with you. I'm going to fight with you to the very end. And he denies him. And now Jesus, for some reason, I talked ahead of time and said, no, no, no. I'm going to build my church on this guy. And I'm like, why, Jesus, would you build your church on that guy? What would cause a man with such passion, with a zeal, to deny Jesus three times? I think he lost his heart in the garden, and thought there was no hope left. But here's the best part about 1 Peter 4. How does it end? It ends in what's known as a doxology. It ends in literally, he can't even finish the letter. This isn't even the end of the letter. He's like, to him be the glory forever and ever, amen. Like, he's fired up. So what would take a guy who's denying somebody, Jesus, his Savior, three times, to then now being in that moment where he's praising Jesus 
in 1 Peter 4, and it's this. And this is the secret, by the way, to I think all of us in this room reclaiming our passion for who Jesus is. And it's this, the resurrection power. What's the only thing that happened in between Jesus? I mean, literally, Peter losing all of his passion. And now Peter writing this like, I know he's coming. See, I think 1 Peter 4 was written with like Peter smiling, like reliving the final experiences that he had with his best friend. I think he's thinking back like, man, I was such a failure. But thank goodness, thank God that you were here, Jesus, to show me what it really looked like to love, to serve, to like literally lay my life down for somebody else. I think Peter's reliving that. And I think you and I in this room, we have made a a huge mistake of chasing after passions or giftings that we think that's going to fulfill us when God is sitting there right in front of us saying, look, it's all tied to a relationship. That's the best part. The power in the words that Peter writes are not because they're written down. It's because he actually lived a relationship with Jesus. This was Jesus' best friend. And this is how he tells us to live for God. And not only that, like this is what blew my mind this week. Not only does Jesus do all this for like the world, Jesus did this personally for Peter. Check this out, Luke 22. Simon, Simon. Notice how he calls him by his old name. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, Strengthen your brothers. So good. See, before Peter had even denied Jesus, he's like, hey, I'm no, I, you're going to be good because I'm praying for you right now. And then not only that, how does, how does Jesus love Peter personally? What happens after the resurrection? Peter sees Jesus on a beach, jumps off of the, the boat, swims over and sees him. He's got a charcoal fire, by the way, we talked about this. He arrives back there and guess what? Jesus revisits each and every one of his failures, all three of those times where he denied Jesus and says, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Each time to reiterate the fact that Jesus knew that Peter loved, Je- oh, sorry, messed it up. Jesus knew that Peter loved Jesus. He had to show him. And he took him back to the moments most personal to him, the biggest failures, the moment I denied you. He says, I'm reinstating you into the family. And now what do you do? Strengthen your brother. What's the final thing Jesus says to Peter? Go feed my sheep. Basically, go build the church. This is now your new calling. This is now your new mission. Peter is opening us up to the fact that in between his denial and now his doxology, there's the resurrection. And you know what's great? It's not just for Peter personally. It's for you. It's for you personally. If you think back to the fact that Jesus laid down his life to serve you, if you think about the fact that Jesus' blood on this day, right now, in this moment, Jesus' blood fully covers all of the sins that disqualify you from a relationship with God. And if you think about the fact that Jesus right now is actively praying for you at the right hand of the Father, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can step into a relationship with God. And Peter's looking at us saying, this is what it's all about. Your passion for God, your emotion is tied to the devotion that you have. But ultimately, it's so good because Jesus has already done everything. In your worst failure, Peter, Jesus didn't fail you. And I think we have to stop looking at God as this like angry, like, oh man, I messed up again. And realize he bankrupted heaven of his son so that you and I could access the purpose of our lives.
there's passion in you. There's purpose in you. And what I love is how it ends. See, every time that Peter acted like him old, his old self, what did Jesus call him? Simon. You notice that? It's because every single time you and I try to act like our old selves before Jesus, he says, no, that's not you. Every time you walk into a, a state of being where you're like, no, I'm too depressed, or I'm anxious, or I'm not good enough, or I'm ugly, or I'm not pretty, or I'm not like the person I'm supposed to be, or I'm still struggling with all these sins, I'm dirty, I'm not available to be used by God at all. God's looking down at you and saying, no, I gave you a new name, and it's holy, and it's dearly loved, and it's chosen, and it's free, and it's healed, and it's purposeful, and it's forgiven, and it's trustworthy, and now you have this new identity to live by where Jesus is saying, reclaim your passion because your passion isn't your passion it's the passion of the cross if you are not passionate right now I'm telling you go revisit the cross revisit the fact that Jesus poured out his whole life so that you and I could have life once again in every single moment and breath that you have in this life it's meant to be used to give back glory to the only one who deserves it so here's what I want to do I want to challenge you in this moment you can go ahead and stand to your feet If you think that your life and your defining moment of your life has already happened and you think that you failed, I honestly want to ask you to go revisit that. See, because I believe that the failures of our lives actually are the, the ground for God to do something special, to reclaim what's true about you. So guess what? Just like Peter, we're going to end this morning with a doxology. And we're going to say again, I'm not enough unless you come. Father, meet me here again. So, Father, I pray for this room. I pray for the people watching online, Birmingham, everywhere else. God, you give us access to who you are. I pray that we would live out of the freedom of the new name you have given us. I pray for the person in the room who's so beat down, who's so hurting who believes all the right things but feels a million miles away from you. God, I pray that you would intersect their heart right now. Holy Spirit, come. Fall on this room. Fill us with your presence again. We need a new revelation of who you are. I thank you for the resurrection power of Jesus that when, when Jesus went in the grave, all of our sin, shame, struggle, everything about us that we don't like went in there with him. But when he came out and rose from the grave, we now have a new hope, a hope set on heaven, a hope set on what it really means to live a life worthy of the calling you have on us. God, we are calling down right now saying, show up. We need you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.